This is the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. 1037 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Making his way to the podcasting ring. Hailing from the heart of Cajun country. It's me. It's me. It's the world famous CD. Let's ring the bell and get this party started off right. And welcome everyone to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, 103.7 Games exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Appreciate you listening in. However you're doing so, be it through 1037thegame.com, Audio Mac, the podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and everywhere in between. We appreciate the heck out of you for listening in to the latest edition of Cajun Strong Style. And I bet you did not see that coming. And by coming, I mean, we're talking about what's go- what happened last night at SummerSlam, and it was an absolutely amazing weekend for pro wrestling in general. We'll get to some of that other stuff later, but we need to get down to it and talk about what's causing all this involving the one of the biggest parties of the summer and just a really cool overall show. I think from top to bottom, it was a solidly booked card, all things considered. Everything they had to deal with. Over the last couple of weeks with the, uh, the Mandy Rose, Sony Deville match, having to rechange change that up, which makes sense. But it was interesting interesting to see how everything wound up working out at the fact you added in the element, the unknown element of the Thunderdome. And it was nuts just seeing how things were for the entire card. I want to catch in the pre-show. For once, I actually watched a pre-show match. And I have to say, it is underrated. I'd say go check out Apollo Crews MVP. First of all, he comes out to the Ballers Anthem, something I hadn't heard in a while. I was like, wait, what's going on here? Was that a botch in terms of production? But if it was, that was a smart move because it actually made it seem a lot bigger of a deal because he went all out with the Ballers Anthem. Hopefully he brings that back going forward rather than the I'm coming because, again, I feel like that, that's kind of a little bit outdated. But Apollo Crews retained in the match. It was a really fun one. It was a, probably... A lot more underrated compared to what you see in some of the other matches on this card. It's, it's something that's going to be forgotten about, but I highly recommend you go check it out. And then the main card opened up on the night with Bailey versus Asuka. And my God, that was a lot of fun. And I was for a moment or two, whenever I saw the way it was going to be booked out, where you have Bailey fight first, I have expected her to not, not retain that title. Lo and behold, of course, we knew what happened later in the night. We knew that was going to happen. We thought maybe we we're going to see Asuka all belts after the way the Beat the Clock Challenge ended on Friday Night SmackDown. But, you know, we were surprised, genuinely surprised at the fact that we were sitting here in 2020 and we were over the moon about the fact that you had the SmackDown Women's Champion retain her title and continue her almost year-long reign, which is nuts to think about. She has been holding that title for over 300 days Nothing short of impressive for her, but it was a really great opener, tons of fun, and really great just high spots. The hip attack was great. There was one spot later on that I'll talk about, but it was just so well done from start to finish. You saw the trading the Oscar locks and everything in between. Bailey still retaining the women's title was so well done, and it made you question, you know, obviously this match wound up going about 18 minutes, but you thought you'd wind up having a chance to see the main event of SummerSlam, the opening match of SummerSlam. You could see a title change happen, but you did not see that happen. And I was genuinely surprised, and I was so happy that it didn't happen because I was looking forward to seeing Bailey retain. I actually had her in my picks. If you listen to the most recent Cajun Strong Style podcast, we were previewed SummerSlam and NXT Takeover. 
but Bailey retained. And then we got to the tag team match for the Raw Tag Team titles, Street Profits, Andrade, and Angel Garza. It was fine. It was a relatively short match, the second shortest of the card. The shortest, not counting the pre-show match. It wound up going 640. This wound up going 750, a minute 10 longer. But overall, it was just a fine tag team match, passable, some entertaining one-liners like Corey Graves. Finally, he took his pants off, which was interesting, and Kevin Owens was like, what? And it was so cool to see the Street Profits entrance with the solo cups falling down. But I wish it was on both sides because I like the idea of it. The the premise is good. The premise is good. But why couldn't have production said, hey, put equal amounts on both sides? That way it looked a lot cooler, just the imagery of it. It it was a little weird. It reminded me a lot of how Impact Wrestling was with their first show. Because I wound up rewatching that not long ago. And they had literally the fireworks go off and it was just very half-heartedly. It was very strange. I wish it was just a lot more where you have part of them rain down on the left side and part of them rain down on the right side. It would be a lot cooler of a visual. But Street Profits retained no surprise there. And the finish was interesting because it looked like, you know, Montez was about to fall, but luckily Taz managed to recover himself off the top rope. But really a fun match. And now Street Profits move on to whomever is going to be the next contenders for the tag team titles. Because I have no idea any other tag teams outside of the Viking Raiders that they could be teaming up, fighting against in the not-too-distant future, especially with payback less than like six days away, which is a dumb idea to begin with, but that's beyond the point. And then we get to the really fun and interesting match of all of this. It is over the course of the last week, everything going on with Sony Deville outside of the ring caused a major change in the card, and that is changing this from a hair versus hair match to a no disqualification loser leaves WWE match. The fact that we did a loser leaves town match in 2020 is great, and the fact that this was absolutely needed and necessary, and we get to see Sony Deville, Mandy Rose go at it, and it was an entertaining match but it did not necessarily need the no disqualification tag on it. Underwhelming for the most part from that perspective. When it comes to just how the no disqualification gimmick was used, they were outside the ring for a while, but you know it was all about finding a winner, and they didn't really do much in terms of actual like high spots outside of, I think they had a table spot, but it was all about the finish. You saw Mandy Rose really nail a lot of, knee strikes and it was the, the V triggers multiple times throughout that contest. She was hitting them one after the other, after the other, after the other. Overall, Mandy Rose, Sonya Deville is probably a match that not a lot of people are going to be talking about going forward, but I think they should just go rewatch it. It's really good. It was really fun. And then the thing that really kind of threw me off was the fact that you had after the match, Otis is already out. So they're going to go ahead and celebrate. And obviously you're going to celebrate after a big win and being able to stay in WWE. But why did you celebrate doing the worm? And possibly one of the worst worms since Trish Stratus did it back in the day. Mandy Rose, girl, stick to just being you because that was a horrible, horrible attempt at the worm. And I'm not throwing shade at her. It's just straight up facts to me. And she's absolutely one hell of a talent, one hell of a hand. But this was a little weird. It was a little weird of a move, but you know what? We'll move on from Mandy Rose wins. Sony Deville gets to kind of hopefully kind of fade away in terms of the public eye for a good while, especially after the whole near kidnapping situation, everything going on with that. Hopefully they're able to kind of change this and be able to handle the entire situation in the best way possible. Cause this is such a huge thing outside of wrestling 
and she's able to get the help that she needs. That way, whenever she's ready to return, she can return, and she's in the right mindset. And then we get to the match I think everybody has been talking about, and I'd agree, it is the match of the night. The street fight between Seth Rollins and Dominic Mysterio, I wouldn't have put this after the no disqualification match just because it doesn't necessarily fit in terms of how I want to book out a show. I would have loved to have Asuka Sasha Banks be that second match on the card or that fourth to last and have you have a triple main event. You book it as that the street fight, the WWE title match and the false count anywhere between the fiend and Braun Strowman. But that's besides the point. It's all about Seth Rollins taking on Dominic Mysterio, Rey Mysterio's son, and it was a really well-done match. Like For a street fight, this was over 20 minutes, the longest match of the night. And Dominic Mysterio held his own for a lot of that show. It was really well done. And I'm so glad that Dominic Mysterio took the loss here. Simply because of the fact that it makes you wonder what's going to happen on Sunday. Because you know something's going to pop up for this match. For maybe a tag match with Seth Rollins and Murphy. Taking on Dominic and Rey Mysterio. I'm interested to see what's going to happen there. But it was absolutely Match of the night. I love the attire. The fact you had Seth Rollins paying homage to the infamous Halloween Halloween Havoc match with him a Ray versus Eddie, and you had had him a Seth Rollins wearing the trunk similar to it, which is really well done. And then Dominic, seemingly at least that's what it looked like. The 2005 SummerSlam attire, basically modernized, was really another. Again, Mikazi is highly underrated as a you know as a hand, literally as somebody who is a seamstress or a seamster, I should say. He does a great job with all that crap, and it's absolutely enthralling to see him do his work and be able to put together some really great gear for some of the great superstars in the WWE. But it was a really fun match. You saw a white Russian leg sweep off the second rope, which was absolutely nuts to butts, and you saw just the way they were building towards you know Seth Rollins possibly curb-stomping Dominic's mom, which would have been absolutely the most heel heat possible. But again, I'll say this. A year ago, we were starting to cool off on Seth Rollins being the babyface. He, was, he wasn't he was cool. We started just to hate on him for a lot of different reasons. Seth Rollins became the king heel, and he never he doesn't need to change a thing. He doesn't need to kind of shift back to being a babyface down the road. Seth Rollins needs to continue to do this Monday Night Messiah gimmick until the well runs dry because he is in his prime form as a heel. I'm starting to kind of re-realize that because he was really great as a heel in Ring of Honor before he jumped to WWE, but I feel like Seth Rollins has really stepped into his own with this gimmick, and I wish he would bring back God's last gift, but again, that's just my opinion because that would make this a lot cooler, just a way to make it an angle where basically you're saying, hey, you know, you're God's last gift, and that's basically your finish, but he wound up winning with the stomp. Ray Mysterio, Dominic Mysterio had an amazing frog splash. I was surprised to see how much air the kid got because he was a good like five plus feet over the top. He was like way over heavy elevation onto the frog splash. Really well done. If I were Dave Meltzer giving a star rating, I'd probably give this one a four and a half star because the storyline was already built in there and this was an absolute banger. And for a guy who had his first ever match in WWE, probably his first match, period, at least from what I can think of, I haven't seen any footage of him wrestling in a hood or a mask, but he had his first ever match, so to speak, in this, I got to say, that is well freaking done, my good man. And then we get to the Asuka-Sasha Banks match, a submission Asuka wins by, but it definitely made you think, 
are we just going to continue with the meme that Sasha can never retain her women's title? And when you think about it, Sasha Banks has always been one of the best women's wrestlers in the company, and they continue to use her in that way. And I get it. You're wanting to continue this, like, I'm not even going to say it's a slow burn. It's a glacial burn. We are literally been sitting here for the better part of two or three years waiting for them to finally pull the trigger and make Sasha Bailey be a big feud. But we're still waiting to see it happen. Obviously, I think we see the roles reverse and we see Bailey play the heel and Sasha play the babyface. At least that's the way I think about it because I think Bailey is doing some of her best work right now as a heel and she's finally kind of coming into her own. If you turn her babyface with no real rhyme or reason, it does not. It's a lot like what happened with Brandy Rose when they randomly decided to not turn her face and turn her from heel to face in AEW with no real reasoning why. And then, lo and behold, changes in an instant. And it was overall just disappointing as all get out to see the fact that they were kind of changing the rules on the fly and saying, oh, hey, we're going to go ahead and play the game this way and make your boy, make your girl, Sasha Banks, lose by submission. But there was really one awesome spot in particular. I think Asuka definitely deserves the MVP for SummerSlam, and it largely has to do with the fact that she took an amazing bump after having a really long first match. She follows it up with a pretty decent-sized second match and put and takes a sunset flip power bomb onto the floor. And it wasn't like a basically, you know, land and it looks like it hurts. You could literally hear the plop and it was like it was like a splat and you were like oh my god like she is absolutely hurting that's probably a big time concussion and then oscar winds up they wind up trading oscar locks and bank statements at a really cool transition really great technical spot wasn't necessarily the best but it was still a whole lot of fun it makes you think that oscar is probably one of the best workers in the company and she comes away with a huge win for the wwe raw women's title Gets back the belt after losing it a couple months ago in a very kind of finicky way. It was almost forced on Sasha Banks to win the Raw Women's title. But that was kind of a big story for a while. Everybody was talking about that. But then we get to the second longest match of the night, and it didn't need to be. Drew McIntyre, Randy Orton. You could probably take in five minutes from that match and placed it in the Street Profits match, the, the Bailey-Sasha Banks match, somewhere along those lines. Hell, you could probably put a couple more minutes into the Mandy Rose Sonya Deville match, and it would have been okay. 20 minutes and 35 seconds for a one on one match with the WWE title was way too long, but this was typical, par for the course for Randy Orton, having these long, drawn out matches, and it just did nothing for me. It did nothing for me. I was really cool with the, with the fact that the match ended with Drew McIntyre hitting the roll up, the backslide. Off of an RKO, which maybe shows that the RKO can be countered after all in more than one way. Because I've never seen anybody do the backslide onto Orton. Not only get the win, but do that as a counter to the RKO. Really fun stuff. It was a really interesting match, but it just couldn't hold my interest for the whole 20 minutes and 35 seconds it happened. Meanwhile, the main event is what I think everybody was talking about. The Fiend Bray Wyatt taking on Braun Strowman in a false count anywhere match. It was so damn good. From start to finish, it was full of energy, and you saw a lot of, lot of really cool spots. The fact they were in Gorilla, throwing each other around, everything about that was fun. You had to see a lot of really cool spots, and I love the fact that we had, in 2020, the WWE Universal Champion becomes Bray Wyatt after you know Braun Strowman decided to be an 
idiot and go ahead and cut up the ring, but not realizing how to really cut it up and leave the actual wood out there to make the Sister Abigail look a lot more devastating. But then it was all about Roman Reigns returning during the Fiend celebration, and Roman Reigns beat the hell out of everybody, demolishing the Fiend, spearing Braun. It was probably one of the best moments of a pay-per-view in a long time, and you did not literally see that coming. It was so damn good the way the card ended, and I absolutely was in love with the fact that Roman Reigns won it. Roman Reigns stood tall at the end of the show. And then, of course, we see the fact that the next night we find out Roman Reigns, Braun Strowman, Bray Wyatt, The Fiend for the Universal title. Why? Seriously, just why? That's not how it works. Why do we have somebody contending for a title that they have not fought fought in like four months, but they immediately get an opportunity? Come on, guys. Get it together. But still, overall, a phenomenal card from top to bottom for the WWE. Way better than I expected it to be, so more kudos to them. Now let's flip it on over to what happened with AEW Dynamite, the Saturday night special. Before I get to my thoughts fully on Dynamite, because I think the biggest storyline of them all was the main event. I'm probably just spending most of my time talking about that because Dynamite outside of the women's tag final, which ended in a surprising fashion with Diamante and Ivelisse winning it. But I was blown away by the fact that, you know, my DVR was scheduled to run from 5 to 7. I was supposed to record from 5 to 7 p.m. So when I turned it on Sunday, because it's usually, full disclosure, it's usually when I do most of my binge watching of wrestling. Because I'm usually busy as all get out, so I'm necessarily am able to pay attention to shows that happen live. Especially with the way my job is. Basically, I'm working nights. So most Monday nights, I'm having to watch it a little bit delayed and fast forward through all the commercials, which is a great thing. But at the same time, I miss it a little bit of stuff in terms of writing down for my show notes. And that's the big thing that frustrates me is the fact I constantly forget stuff that happened. So I want to go ahead and rewatching some stuff just to kind of refresh my memory and more importantly, get some thoughts together concerning what happened with the WWE and raw and SmackDown and NXT and AEW. But anyway, so Sunday I decided to start up AEW because I was already done with NXT. I was already, I saw most of SmackDown live. I'll get to my thoughts on the Thunderdome later, but my whole thing was the fact that you had like my DVR, I turn it on, and then I see the first 30-plus minutes of it is basketball. I felt like an idiot because I could have just like basically left it on TNT and just hit record. But me being a Melvin, because I was busy doing other things, I completely forget it's going on. I go ahead Sunday morning, pop it on. So I missed like the last 30 minutes of it in terms of recording it, but I was able to watch a good chunk of the show on demand. I was able to watch the last match, and that's all I really cared about because I was hearing a lot of great things about the fact that you had the Brody, Mr. Brody, taking on Cody for the TNT title. And Brody wins the title. And it was so damn good. It's probably one of the best like matches that Dynamite's put together because of the fact that it was a squash. It was a one sided, absolute beatdown of Cody Rhodes. And now it sets up a story of the Nightmare family taking on the Dark Order instead of it being, you know, what we thought it was going to be with the Elite and the Dark Order. Now we get to see. The Nightmare family, Cody, Dustin, Arn, and Brandy, all involved in trying to basically drum up some support. Also, QT Marshall, can't forget about him. They're all going to be involved in this angle, and we get to see that possibly being a big payoff. Not at all out, but I think down the road, 
once we get possibly to full gear, where we see this be a long-term storyline with the Dark Order not only trying to take over AEW, but more importantly, destroy the Nightmare family, the people who run this whole thing. Because the way that we're talking after the match, it was all your fault. It was all your fault. And it was so much fun to see the viciousness and the savagery that Brody Lee put together. It was one-sided, hard-hitting, and then the finish. When he hit them in that discus lariat, Cody flipped over himself, and it was like the most devastating clothesline of all time. And it really establishes Brody Lee as the true leader of the group, and it makes him seem even more of a badass than he was already after all we saw from him in WWE as Luke Harper and CZW before that as the original Brody Lee. But Mr. Brody Lee absolutely lived up to the hype, and I had the fact that he destroyed the old TNT title now that he was going to win the new TNT title, which is all gold, which was a great storyline to begin with, and great reason why I enjoyed the fact they hyped this up like nobody else. So extremely well done main event in my book for AEW Dynamite, and it led me to believe that I think we're going to start seeing the Dark Order get over a lot more. They're going to continue to start winning matches. And if they do that, that is absolutely going to be huge for Dynamite. People have these guys continue to rise because now you have two major heel groups in Inner Circle, which continue to win and continue to rack up wins and be a great stable. Now you have Dark Order, which was originally treated like a bunch of goons, and they were treated as a side note and a joke for a while. Fast forward a year later, they finally have a purpose. You have Mr. Brody after losing to Moxley. Now he has the TNT title. Now he has power, and he's going to start taking over and really kind of run a rough shot. Maybe we'll see Evil Uno and Stu Grayson wind up getting a title run down the road. Who knows? But I think this is a huge step in the right direction for the Dark Order to see what's going to happen going forward. Are we going to see more involvement with Cody, Brandy, Dustin, and again, QT Marshall. We can't forget about him or Anderson as well. Are we going to see blood and guts for that instead of the what was supposed to be elite versus inner circle? I would love to see blood and guts make his debut simply for that show, simply for that match, because that was supposed to be right before the pandemic. That was what everybody was building up to. And that was going to, we were going to see Mr. Brody. And then of course, everything kind of changed. The card changed in a big way. And a little bit, we wound up getting a lot better of a storyline, I think down the road for Mr. Brody to establish himself as a monster. And now it creates a true feud for Cody Rhodes. And I'm looking forward to seeing how that's going to go for the next several weeks. But I think the biggest thing that I absolutely loved over the weekend was NXT TakeOver 30. First off, it was weird having an NXT TakeOver without the voice of Mauro Ranallo involved on it. But it made sense. I mean, he's been working from home since the pandemic started in March. He had some family issues to take care of, according to reports. But overall, loved the fact that you had a great NXT TakeOver commentary crew. You had Beth Phoenix, Esper the Huge, and then you had Vic Grimes and Corey Graves. And that was just a lot of fun. And, you know, the set, you know, was something else I kind of noticed from the jump. Is it reminded me a lot of the Mania 30 set with the X's. The X's looked a lot like it was scary how accurate they were to the Mania 30 set. But it wasn't because I was texting my friend after I watched the show and I was like, oh my God, this looks exactly like the X's from WrestleMania 30. But it wasn't. It was a little bit smaller for what we could kind of tell. But the pre-show match was really fun too. I, I can't discredit that. It was Legato Del Fantasma taking on Brizongo, Birch, and Lorcan in a triple threat tag team match to determine the number one contenders for the NXT tag titles. 
and a surprising finish. I think everybody was expecting it to be either Legado del Fantasma or Birch and Lorcan, but Brizongo manages to pull away and get the win, and now they have a number of contendership against the team of Imperium, which I want to see that down the road because I think it's going to be a lot of fun, and we know Brizongo is going to bring out an absolutely banger of an outfit for this one, for this title opportunity. Getting another big title opportunity is great to see for Brizongo. And then we get to the opener, a really good opener, I would say. Probably would have been a nominee for Match of the Week. Finn Balor, Timothy Thatcher, a great opener. Solid story being told throughout with the left leg that Finn Balor was injured on early on in the contest. And it was crazy to think he still went for the coup de gras twice in the contest. And he wanted to come away with the win after a coup de gras. The he attempted it a second time and nailed it. And then the 1916 right after that. And now he has an even dozen wins at NXT TakeOver. It reminded me a lot of how Seth always still did high spots while selling the knee infrequently after he had his knee injury, which I could not necessarily get into all that much, but it was still a solid contest to open up NXT TakeOver. Thatcher really shined in this contest, even in a losing effort controlling the pace for the contest with his technical wrestling. Balor was able to hold his own there, but it was still Thatcher controlling the pace of play, and that was really something I was impressed by. Then you get the NXT North American title match, a five-way ladder match. And this was probably my favorite thing of the night because it was something that needed to happen. It was different. You didn't see the indie darling. You saw, relatively speaking, obviously, Damian Priest, the former punishment Martinez, win the title. But it was more about showcasing the new superstars, these newer superstars that we've seen but haven't seen a whole lot of that to take them truly Seriously, because when I look at Cameron Grimes, I can't take him seriously. Damian Priest, at least somewhat, I can take him seriously because he's a big mamma-jamma. But it was still standing there, you know, I don't care. I want to see, and Bronson Reed, too. Bronson Reed wasn't somebody I took seriously. And I see him in the Bam Bam Bigelow gear. And I'm like, hell yeah, this dude's awesome. And then you, I see everything that kind of keeps going forward. And then the it was a standard multi-man ladder match. Tower Doom spot. It was a really cool twist, though, with Grimes giving Priest the super pl- the German suplex off the top while also taking a powerbomb from Reed. Just a really cool, different situation to do the Tower Doom spot compared to some of the stuff I've seen in the past, especially in TNA. And then Gargano. I don't know if this is planned or not, but it looked like improv does all get out. Gnarly, like, ladder assisted one final beat on Reed that looked like it left Reed absolutely dazed. And the spots were just all over the place. You know, the... Priest dive off the ladder onto Dream, looking like Shelton Benjamin. Was gnarly. Candice LeRae running interference. I can't forget. Priest was the star of this match, or probably the star of the night. Counting her crossbody with what looked like a Spanish fly, and it looked so damn smooth. Candice LeRae was running interference, and was probably one of my favorite spots of the night on the back of Reed. And he spat and he splashes under Gargano, taking the Wednesday night out of the picture for a good while. And I think it was all about what I was, like, I was blown away by some of the spots because Bronson Reed basically threw Velveteen Dream off the ladder into a table past the barricade. And again, I talked about it with talked about this with the Rhea Ripley match on NXT where she powerbombed her past the barricade. It looked like it was a lot bigger of a drop, and it was so hard to watch that. It was so difficult. And then we see Gargano knock Reed off the ladder. And then it's Priest and Gargano fighting to take the belt. It was so similar to whenever you had Jericho Michaels in 08 and No Mercy. And then Priest 
kind of big boots Johnny to win the title. And it was great to see him finally get a title on NXT after all the work that he's put in. Overall, I've enjoyed his work for quite a while. And then we get to the Adam Cole, Pat McAfee match, which was way better than I expected for the most part. It was probably, I'd say, the best celebrity match WWE has ever had. And that's not hyperbole. I think it's straight up fact at this point. Adam Cole, Bebe, and Pat McAfee put together a phenomenal match. And I got to say, McAfee had a great pre-match promo. But his entrance music absolutely sucked. It's time to go back to the drawing board with that and not let the generic 2K20 guys come up with a theme for it because that's exactly what it sounded like to me. And I have to say, McAfee looks so damn good with a lot of those spots. The top rope dive to the outside was really good. Mind you, you had a lot of assistance with all those guys, but it was still a damn good match overall. And I think it'll be played in a lot of highlights whenever they start doing takeover rewinds because it's going to be a match people talk about for a long time. And I was really enjoying the selling of Pat because he injured his foot during the after this punt kick. So he's selling that for a good chunk. Then we see the figure four leg lock that's selling the injury. And I was really blown away by the finish because yet I did not expect to see the Panama Sunrise for the pen, for this match and be used to in the match. And McAfee made that made, took that like an absolute champ. And what a like, that's a very bad bump to take, a Canadian Destroyer. And this was a prime example of why. And I was blown away by the fact McAfee looked like he was about to die after taking that bump. So more power to him for getting it done. And then it was Dakota Kai, EO Shirai. Of course, EO won. It was a fast-paced contest. I enjoyed the hell out of it. After I kind of was having to dig around to find that match because I wasn't able to pull it up while watching SummerSlam. So I was having to kind of do a little double duty and get it done to be able to finish out NXT TakeOver, but it, it was no surprise there. I think we're going to eventually see Candice LeRae win the NXT Women's title. That's just, just at least what it seems like. So you need to have a babyface win it to become a transitional champion. Speaking of transitional champions, Karrion Cross taking on Keith Lee. And this was a damn fun match, a little over 20 minutes long. And again, I talked about it with SummerSlam. It didn't do a whole lot for me, the fact you wound up going over 20. I'm not a fan of matches to go over 20 minutes unless you have like a real great story to tell. This was so short. You didn't have a whole lot of hype behind it. And for the most part, I just felt like it was just okay. You saw Frost use a lot of rest holds, and it makes sense with the fact of how his character is presented like an absolute freaking badass, and it was so well done. But it was still overall a little disappointing. And now we hear, apparently, Karrion Cross suffered a separated shoulder during his match and now the NXT title Cavero will be vacated, and now you wonder what's going to happen next. And Lee's going to be moving over to the Raw brand, which I was disappointed about. I thought for a second that because of the title having to be vacated, you would have seen a tournament of champions to crown the new NXT champion. But I guess they're going to try and come up with a game plan down the road to where we have guys like a Bronson Reed, Cameron Grimes, not Velveteen Dream, Adam Cole, all these guys have a bigger opportunity to win an NXT title for the first time ever. Tommaso Ciampa's in that conversation. Who knows what's going to happen with all these guys now that you aren't having a NXT reigning champion on the roster. Keith Lee, I wish they had done a tournament of champions, but you know it is what it is. Overall, really solid show. Just felt like you know the main event didn't go didn't need to go nearly as long. Could have probably sprinkled maybe another, like, probably could have taken a, a minutes off of some of these other matches as well, 
just because the fact I feel like you if you go more than 20 minutes outside of like a normal outside of a multi-man match with one-on-one you need to have a bigger storyline in it especially if it's a main event it just felt like it wound up going a little bit too long in my book and one more bit of wrestling to get to in terms of stuff that happened New Japan Strong hosted their New Japan Cup USA titles USA finals excuse me and I'll I'll just say this. Skip the tag team matches. There were only three matches on the card. And they announced New Japan's plans for Fighting Spirit Unleashed starting next week on New Japan Strong. But it's all about the final. Kenta versus David Finley. And all weekend long, I was thinking about this. This is a hidden gem on, on a show that I think many were going to pass up because of the fact that it's TakeOver SummerSlam weekend. But you should take a, some time and watch a fairly decent match with Kenta and David Finley. Kenta wins it with a GTS and maybe wish crowds were still a thing because I'd love to see the reaction to the finish from a live crowd. Cause every time Kenta did the GTS on NXT, the crowd went absolutely ape. So I was wondering what's, I'm wondering what's going to happen there. Then now Kenta has a date for the U S title down the line, but it's a very complicated situation because apparently Moxley can't wrestle stateside defending the IWGP United States title. But if you want to go to Japan, he's got to travel and then quarantine for two weeks, which I feel like that's not going to happen. But now Jeff Cobb came out as Kenta is cutting a post-match promo in Japanese. And this is setting up potentially a match with Cobb and um, Kenta for the contract to take on, you know, Moxley. That's the real question. But again, I'd overall skip the two tag team matches and watch Kenta versus David Finley only. It's a relatively short match, but it's definitely, I feel like it's going to be underrated. Nobody's really going to talk about it maybe three, four months down the road. And finally, I'm going to jump into Thunderdome talk for a for a brief moment. Because I was actually part of the first ever Thunderdome. I, it's a whole story. So when I got in at first, I wasn't able to get in. And then I tried again later on in the night, got in during commercial break, was on for all two minutes, then I got booted out. And they were saying, oh, you're done. And then I sit here. I'm wondering why am I getting booted off? And then I go ahead and try again a little bit later on. I get in and I basically had a, the time of my life being part of a show for the that was the first of its kind. A Thunderdome show it was really cool. I didn't see myself because, again, I wasn't really paying that much attention to where I was. But it was more paying attention to how the whole show went. And obviously, I think now we hear a lot of stories concerning the way WWE produces SummerSlam, the way they had the fans apparently being told when to cheer, when to boo. It makes sense in my book to be able to do that. But I'll say this. It was pretty fun to be in that crowd when Jeff Hardy won the title, for the won the Intercontinental title for the fifth time or something like that. And it was really fun to see the whole crowd and the way they handled things during commercial breaks, running a little ad, having like Big E... Cesaro and Shinsuke join in on the call through audio only. And then uh, during the final segment, this is what really blew me away was before the final segment of SmackDown where you had him a brawn, basically yeet your boy Bray Wyatt. (laughs) I'm still laughing at this. You had Bray Wyatt get chokeslammed off of the, (laughs) onto the concrete. And it reminded me of Kurt Angle, Big Show 2004, not long after WrestleMania. It reminded me of that angle a lot. And then you see, it, it blows me away to this to this day. They had the they had this happen, and then Braun's basically walking away. Bray Wyatt's able to control the 
control the ambulance, which was even weirder. Overall, I enjoyed the experience of it, but going back to that commercial break before, all of a sudden I hear 30 seconds till SmackDown. Keep that energy going, folks. We're heading into a vignette where you're not seeing a single bit of fan. I absolutely hated that part. That was probably the thing I hated the absolute most about the experience because it just felt like it was tedious. And at times, like the audio would would get choppy as hell. Maybe it was just the fact that my internet connection was crap that night. But overall, I thought it was okay. I'm probably not going to do it again, but I was glad to get into the first ever show for SmackDown inside the Thunderdome. Really worth it. It was really fun, and I'm probably not going to do it again, but I appreciate WWE for, in the words of Bray Wyatt, letting me in. And that's going to do it for the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. Thank you for listening. Hope you leave a nice review for us. Five stars. If you're in the Tokyo Dome right now, I'd give you a lot of credit for being there, but also give us six stars if you're out there in the Tokyo Dome. More importantly, subscribe to us on iTunes, the Google Play Podcast. Just search 103.7 The Game. You better get that, along with all the other great content that we got, like the Louis Prejean Podcast, the Rap Game Podcast, all of our regular shows. We got so many different things that you can listen to, and we'll talk to you next time.